This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Science is a pretty good uh, topic, I think, for a segment. We've done a few in in, in the past dedicated to that uh, that notion. I think today's show is probably going to entirely be based on the idea of weird science, although we're going to define science rather broadly. For example, we're probably going to refer to economics as a science, <laughs> which sounds pretty good, although we frankly have often had our doubts that it is no more of a science than is astrology, but... That's just us. One story that I think might define the concept of weird science would be the fact that this year represents the 200th anniversary of the publishing of Mary Shelley's inimitable novel, Frankenstein. In fact, The Economist magazine reviewed no less than four books taking a look at Mary Shelley and her product. If nothing else, it has gotten this correspondent over to his bookshelf to pull down a copy of Frankenstein, which I have commenced reading. There will be a book report to follow in the weeks to come. Now, I have been meaning to read it for a while, a while being that I think dating back to the time that I read Dracula by Bram Stoker, which I liked very much. I think I was in the seventh grade. <laughs> but you know what they say, better late than never. Since I was just taking a slam a moment ago at economics, let, 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 let's jump right into a story that just kind of has my hair on fire. It has been noted in the popular media of late that um, the Republican Party, which is the party of supposedly fiscal restraint when they're not in power, is currently signing on with some budget deficits that are, well, um, let's just say jaw-dropping. To quote from the retread of Philip Klein's article in the WashingtonExaminer.com, which I believe is quite a conservative publication, during the Obama presidency, conservatives outraged by deficit spending launched the Tea Party movement to demand fiscal restraint. But now that Republicans have gained full control of the federal government, they have chosen to repeal the Tea Party. House Speaker Paul Ryan, President Trump, and other Republicans last week agreed with Democrats to blow up the budgetary spending caps that were the main legacy of the Tea Party movement, agreeing on a two-year spending binge that will force the U.S. to borrow. Are you ready for it? $955 billion this year. That, that's right. Borrow $955 billion this year, which will just about double last year's rather astounding figure of $519 billion. But it gets worse. In 2019, <laughs> our elected representatives are planning to borrow one. $0.15 trillion, which will give Democrats a chance to increase their domestic spending from $539 billion to $591 billion, and Republicans will get an equivalent bump in military spending from $634 billion to $700 billion. And I think these numbers do leave me literally speechless, so I'm just going to move on. 
But, you know, before we get too buried into our weird science uh, excursion today, l- let's take a moment to do a perennial favorite of this program, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Today, we are entirely indebted to the week for these selections, which noted that it was a good week last week for karma, with the news that a lion poacher with a rifle was killed and eaten by lions at a private game park in South Africa. These irritated lions, according to police, ate his body, nearly all of it, and just left his head and some remains. And Mr. Miller, I think we need some appropriate music for this next one. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. It was apparently a bad week last week for living the dream with the news that a Colorado couple with what's described as little sailing experience quit their jobs, bought a 28-foot sailboat for a trip around the world and managed to sink it within sight of land shortly after leaving Florida. Tanner Broadwell, age 26, and Nikki Walsh, age 24, say they'll try again when they save some money. Mr. Millen suggests that they try again not just when they've saved some money, but also, perhaps, after taking some sailing lessons. And it was an ugly week last week. We're not sure whether it was for the Americans with Disabilities Act or minority rights, but the story is that an appeals court has rejected a Texas man's claim that blood alcohol limits for drivers are unfair to alcoholics. Yes, after his fourth driving under the influence, Ralph Friesenhan argued that alcoholics have a higher tolerance and shouldn't be judged by the same blood alcohol standards as, quote, temperate drinkers, unquote. The court, as you might imagine, was unpersuaded. Said prosecutor Sammy McCrary, you're not being punished for being an alcoholic. It's the driving that's the problem. And finally, it was both a bad and ugly week. We would judge for freedom of speech with the news that a white Princeton professor is under fire for using racial slurs while teaching a course on racial slurs. Rosen reportedly asked students whether it was worse for a white man to punch a black man or call him the N-word. At that point, several students walked out. Professor Rosen says he can't teach his course, entitled Hate Speech, Blasphemy, and Pornography, without quoting some examples of hate speech. I'm going to try and run down a report that we've gotten from Southern California that one of our former contributors, David Rosenblum, is opening up a company that's going to try and distribute safe spaces. David reported to us that he made a killing on, uh, on, on apparently picking up some former fallout shelters at a fire sale price. Those are his words. As far as we know, having a safe space that, uh, that uh, has a lot of canned goods stored in it is probably okay. All right, for weird science stories, I don't think you can do better than this item, which I stumbled on the past week, and perhaps you did too, dear listener, which is that scientists are reporting that they've discovered the first evidence for planets in another galaxy. Now, as well reported on this program, NASA has previously confirmed the existence of more than 3,500 planets that orbit stars other than the sun, but all these exoplanets are 
within our own galaxy, the Milky Way, which, if you're keeping track, is about 100,000 light years across. Now, astrophysicists are claiming to have detected exoplanets in another galaxy, which is 3.8 billion light years away, using data from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory Space Telescope. They report that they're looking at light coming from a quasar, which is a supermassive black hole surrounded by a disk of gas, which is 6 billion light years away, and apparently being lensed by this galaxy between us and the quasar. My understanding is they're, they're getting little dips and rises in the data that indicate to them that planets, probably planets that are just at large in this galaxy, are altering the lensing effect of this quasar rapidly. They're saying it couldn't be a star because it's moving too quickly or it's moving too rapidly. I don't really quite understand it. and It sounds like a bunch of bunk to me. They're claiming that this galaxy is a likely home to more than a trillion planets. Yes, no word yet on whether they'll be able to use this gravitational microlensing to determine how many angels dance on the head of a pin, but we're staying tuned for that one. Now, I admit, maybe I'm just being a rube here. Maybe this is some pretty solid science. If you have some information about it, don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and educate us, at which point we will then educate the listenership. But right now, I'm remaining in the skeptics division. Oh, and speaking of the Milky Way galaxy, there was this rather startling uh, conclusion a week or two ago that our nearest sister galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, which is quite stunning to the naked eye, and if you're in under perfect visual conditions, it, it will look almost the size of a full moon. N not as bright, of course, but, but it, it's quite substantial object if you've got really, really dark skies. I remember seeing it while floating in Lake Nicaragua with no lights around, and, and it, it, it looked pretty cool. Now, my understanding has, has always been that the, the Andromeda galaxy has been judged to be twice the size of the Milky Way, and unlike most other galaxies, which are getting further and further away from us, the Andromeda is on a collision course. Something like four billion years from now, the Milky Way and the Andromeda are going to become the Milkdromeda or something. But it's rather startlingly, they're now claiming that, oh, we just did the math, and it turns out that the Andromeda is only half as big as we thought it was. When the claims are being made that it's only half as big as we thought it was, I was like, how can that be? You can measure its width across. I guess they didn't mean the number of light years across that it is, which I guess is probably 200,000 or quarter of a million. I, I don't know. It's a big object, but evidently it has only like a half of the mass we thought it did. It's a head-scratcher. And uh, here's another head-scratcher. Apparently some bright sparks over at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. A scientist named Marius Milote has been working on simulating the conditions inside of Neptune and Uranus, the great gas giants at the edge of our solar system. It's long been predicted, using conventional science, that at the center of these gas giants, you will find temperatures matching those on the sun's surface and pressures exceeding a million Earth atmospheres. In this environment, it is now claimed that you would find hot ice. The oxygen ions of the water molecules behave like a solid, staying in place to form a lattice, while the hydrogen ions flow through it like a liquid. This is based on some models that they created over at Lawrence Livermore starting with something they're calling Ice-7. 
an exotic crystalline form forged only under intense pressure. They trained a laser on one of the two diamonds holding a cube of ice seven. And please, don't try this at home. Making a shock wave that traveled to the diamond and compressed the ice, the melting temperature was reportedly 4,726 Celsius when under pressures equivalent to 2 million times that of Earth's atmosphere. It's claimed that this ice could explain the odd swirling magnetic fields found at both of these planets. Well, maybe. I'm just worried if they've got to Ice 7, what happens when they get to Ice 9? And if you've never read Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, that will mean nothing to you, but shame on you. You should have read what Vonnegut himself regards as his finest work. In it, a brilliant and maybe not quite mad scientist creates a form of ice which will freeze at room temperature. Well, that's, that's the MacGuffin of the novel anyway. If there's one thing that I think we are in complete sync with Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andrew's Poetry and Technology Hour about is that, boy, someone should do a production of Cat's Cradle here locally. I'd like to be a part of that. I, I bet Andy would too. And another weird news from space, Elon Musk, and we just, we just like just saying Elon Musk, last week successfully launched his car into space. Yes, using his Falcon Heavy rocket from Cape Canaveral, the tech billionaire put his Tesla Roadster uh, into an orbit that will take it out past Mars. In case you haven't seen it, the car has a dummy sitting in the driver's seat. I don't know, this is pretty interesting stuff. The Falcon Heavy lifter can apparently carry 140,000 pounds out into space, more than any other rocket operating today. But what's really interesting about SpaceX, Elon Musk's program, is that uh, he's reusing the boosters. They, they turn around and land back on Earth so you can use them over and over again. Because of the cost savings inherent in that, SpaceX charges just $90 million for a Falcon Heavy launch, which is about a quarter of its nearest rival's lowest price. Some pretty cool pictures coming out of this. There's a picture of Starman behind the wheel of the Tesla Roadster, looking like he's, I don't know, about 15,000 miles directly above Adelaide, Australia. We like this guy. All right, let's get off of uh, space oddities for a moment to come down to Earth and talk about how it is that uh, apparently human beings were not the first to develop the concept of triage. If you've ever been treated in an emergency room... You probably had to deal with the triage nurse who has to assess the urgency of your complaint. Obviously, those with life-threatening conditions need to be addressed first. Back to the battlefield in some war or other where it was decided that the most efficient use of resources would be to work on the people who will succeed or fail based on what you do. Some people are going to basically get better uh, regardless of whether they get attention and some people are not going to make it no matter what you do for them. It does make sense to focus on those in the middle and apparently ants beat us to it. Peace and New Scientist magazine notes that a species of ant has become the first known non-human animal to treat the injuries of its fellows. Nurse, quote-unquote, ants lick the lacerations of fallen comrades, and evidently this helps them to survive. Reportedly, Matabele ants, and I assume these ants come from eastern Zimbabwe, which has a province called Matabele, and a town of the same name, which I think I stayed in once. At any rate, these ants reportedly live dangerous lives. Several times a day, they send out parties of soldier ants to hunt termites. 
They drag them from their nests and carry them home. But the termites fight back. They've got soldiers too. And their powerful jaws can administer lethal bites to the ants. The ants often lose limbs. Last year, Eric Frank, then at the University of Würzburg, Germany, reported that Matabele ants routinely carry their wounded back to the nest, which is odd. Social insects usually treat each other as expendable. Injured ants asked for help by releasing a pheromone which prompted other ants to carry them. In a follow-up, Frank, now at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, and colleagues have filmed what happens in the nest when the injured are brought in. The footage showed that nurse ants spend several minutes licking their fellow ants' wounds. And no, we did, we're not aware that ants had tongues. But apparently that was something the equivalent of it. It was noted that without this attention, 80% of the ants who had lost limbs died within a few hours. Of those that received care, 90% survived. Holy triage. Said Frank, we don't know yet if the ants are just cleaning the wound and removing debris, as we do with our wounds to prevent infection, or if they also are applying antimicrobial substances in their saliva. Either way, the treatment works. Frank notes that the ants are able to reach running speeds similar to healthy ants despite missing a leg or two. Frank says the ants probably don't feel compassion but want to keep their numbers up. Indeed, not all the soldiers were rescued. The ants were selective in who they picked up, said Frank. They didn't want to help heavily injured ants who had lost, say, five legs. Sounds like the triage concept to me. All right, now I have an item that's so weird I probably have no business even tackling it because, frankly, I'm in over my head. It's, it's not really about science. Again, we're sort of back to economics and, and, and maybe not even pure economics, more sociology and economics and fashion, a subject about which we frankly admit we know almost nothing. So despite our probable incompetence, we're going to tackle this piece, which originally appeared in Racked.com, about a dress that reportedly drove the slave trade. Writer Carolyn London notes that when a portrait of Marie Antoinette wearing a simple muslin gown appeared in 1783, it caused a scandal and also ignited a feverish demand for cotton. The article notes that Marie Antoinette, the queen of the last French king of Louis XVI, uh, was noted for her over-the-top fashions. She reportedly had the power to make or break an entire industry, referring to fashion, just by deeming something fashionable. And though it wasn't her intention, that's what she did in a big way with a portrait done in 1783. And it would turn out that despite all of her extravagant fashions, it was her most unassuming look that changed the world, at least according to author London. In this 1783 portrait, Marie Antoinette appears wearing a thin white fabric. It's airy, it's loose, it's cinched at the waist with a sheer golden sash. It's described as having full sleeves and a ruffled neckline, which added volume to an otherwise unstructured shape. Looking back on it centuries later, fashion writers have noted that the gown gives off an aesthetic of rustic simplicity. Author London notes that despite its humble appearance, though, Marie's portrait in the plain cotton dress had an impact that reverberated throughout the world in ways no one could have foreseen. It flipped the textile industry on its head, 
lighting the fuse laid out by a fast-changing world of exploration, the Enlightenment, and rebellion. It caused cotton and the institution of slavery it stood on to explode. It was noted that at this point in time, the vast majority of cotton came from India. And thanks to the East India Company, it was spread across Europe. Native Americans had grown cotton in the southern United States for centuries, and as the colonists took over the New World, they too grew small amounts of cotton, but very little got exported. Much of the American agricultural industry in its infancy was supported by indentured servants. While slavery certainly existed in the U.S. at the time of Marie Antoinette, its future was uncertain. Shortly after the American Revolution, the northern states outlawed slavery one by one, and for a brief time it looked as though the southern states might do the same. That all changed as cotton began to rise. Anyway, back to France. Apparently this portrait of Marie Antoinette got put up in an exhibition at the Salon of the Académie Royale. Apparently the image of Marie's cotton gown portrait caused an uproar. Supposedly, salon visitors demanded the portrait be removed from public view. And I'm sure that then, like now, the, <laughs> the brouhaha over, over this wanting to be banned made everybody want to check it out all the more. It's noted that many thought the garment was alarmingly scandalous. It closely resembled a chemise, that simple dress that served as the base garment for women at the time. In other words, the queen appeared to be posing in her underwear. Beyond the shocking nature of the gown's design, the fabric itself was a source of major uproar. Many of her fellow aristocrats saw the queen in such an inexpensive textile as a breakdown of the barriers between the classes. More importantly, though, cotton was seen by the French as a very English fabric, since India was a British colony. And the queen's critics were concerned that if this caught on, it would destroy the French silk industry. But wouldn't you know it, Marie Antoinette sent her chemise gowns to a few of her friends, including the famous British-style icon Georgiana Cavendish, the Duchess of Devonshire. Soon, what was once seen as scandalous was now seen as stylish. Now, as you may know, Marie Antoinette uh, was executed in 1793 as part of the French Revolution. But although the queen was gone, the impact of her sartorial choice was just starting to make a mark. And yes, the silk industry did crash, as both in France and abroad, the simple white muslin dress became the leading style. By the end of the 18th century, cotton and muslin had nearly completely replaced silk as the fashionable fabrics of choice. The Indian cotton industry could no longer keep up with demand, so Europeans were forced to look elsewhere for their supply. Up until the end of the 18th century, tobacco and rice and other food products dominated the American agricultural industry, all that changed when the demand for cotton suddenly skyrocketed. While the simple cotton dress was rising in popularity, the Industrial Revolution was making major strides to aid in textile production. When Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin in 1794, there was suddenly the technical ability to produce cotton at a rate to keep up with the demand. Now, cotton, of course, required a large labor force to bring in the crop. Plantation owners looked to the, for the cheapest possible option. The boom in the agriculture industry caused a boom in slavery to support it. The article cites a source noting that the annual cotton production rose from about 3,000 bales in 1790 to 178,000 bales in 1810. It then surged more than 20-fold during the next half century. 
The slave population in America increased in turn from about 650,000 slaves in the South in 1790 to more than 1.1 million in 1810, a number that continued to grow in the following decades. So is it fair to blame the perpetuation of slavery on the portrait of a French queen? Well, I certainly think there were more factors involved, but interesting piece. And uh, if you have any insights into the fabrics chosen throughout history uh, and how that changed history itself, please drop us a line. Again, that is at info at radioparallax.com. And, uh, you know, because we don't have a large staff supporting us, we did uh, take the excerpt from that article from the last word section of the February 9th issue of the week. All right, in about the three minutes we have left, let's go back and do a little follow-up here on a discussion we've had on this program for many months on the issue of fructose, part of a greater discussion of the subject of sugar in our diet. Do a little bit of follow-up here in the science and technology section of The Economist, the February 10th issue, about fructose. I'm startled to see that some rather basic research is, is finally being done because it has not been done up till now. The Economist notes that uh, fructose could be a problem for us because too much of it in the diet seems to be associated with liver disease and type 2 diabetes. I'm quoting from the magazine. The nature of this association has been debated for years, they note. Some argue that the effect is indirect. They suggest that because sweet tastes suppress the feeling of being full, Consuming foods rich in fructose encourages overeating and the disease is consequent upon that. Others think the effect is more direct. They suspect the cause is the way fructose is metabolized. We would refer you back to our long discussion about uh, the subject of sugar in our diet with Gary Tobbs, which is on our website at radioparallax.com. The magazine notes that evidence clearly supporting either hypothesis has been hard to come by, but last week... The metabolic hypothesis received a boost from a study published in Cell Metabolism by Josh Rabinowitz of Princeton. Dr. Rabinowitz's work suggests that fructose, when consumed in large enough quantities, overwhelms the mechanism in the small intestine that has evolved to handle it. This enables it to get into the bloodstream along with other digested molecules and travel to the liver, where some of it is converted into fat. This research is apparently based on uh, feeding mice sugar molecules that included a rare but non-radioactive isotope of carbon-13. Some were fed fructose doped with this isotope, others were fed glucose doped with it. By looking where the C-13 went in each case, the researchers could follow the fates of the two sorts of sugar. They noted that the liver is the prime metabolic processing center in the body, so they expected to see fructose dealt with there, but the isotopes told a different story. When glucose was the dope sugar molecule, it was carried rapidly to the liver from the small intestine. But when fructose was doped and administered in small quantities, the isotope gathered in the small intestine instead of being transported to the liver. It seems that the intestine itself has the job of dealing with fructose, thus making sure that this substance never reaches the liver. <laughs> this, uh, I got to tell you, um, we weren't taught this in medical school, and I'm sure you are, will not be taught this in medical school as of two weeks ago. Having established that the two sorts of sugar are handled differently, Dr. Rabinowitz and his colleagues then upped the doses. When they upped the dose of the fructose, it wound up escaping the intestine. About 30% of it was carried unprocessed to the liver, where a part of it was converted into fat. 
Is that a long-term health problem? Well, uh, research needs to continue on this, but wow, it amazes me that this, this such basic information is still um, being worked out. All right, I feel like a little ice cream break, so <laughs> maybe I'll take one. Uh, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more in the second half of today's program, so stick around. <laughs> 